don't worry. I won't hurt you. I'm only trying to have some fun. Well, at least I hope you'll have fun with this week's episode of the Turntables and Tea. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week, we will be discussing a really fun one I'm very excited for. This 80s month, we'll be completing our holy trinity of 80s pop with Prince. And we'll be discussing his landmark album, 1999, which was released in 1982. So it turns 40 this year. So a perfect time to discuss this album and you picked this album however you had something that to say about that surprised me can you share that with everybody yeah this this album was a curiosity for me this uh usually when we're picking we're picking stuff that we've already gone through a million times over uh as our picks but 99 99 and red corvette are really the only two songs on this album that I was super familiar with. And I had never listened to this album all the way through prior to picking it. Um, so this was, this was a cool one. Uh, I I've sat back and laughed out loud to this album so many times throughout listening and been awed by in awe of its, uh, of its sound. And um, I'm, I'm already, you know, I'm already going ahead of myself, but yeah, it was, yeah. it was a first timer for me. So I, I'm who, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Unlike you, I'm quite familiar with it. It had been a while since I'd listened to the whole thing all the way through. It had been a bit since I'd listened to some of these songs. So I did reintroduce myself in a way to some of it because my Prince go-to has always been Purple Rain because right. it's Purple Rain. Uh, of course. <laughs> but this was actually the first Prince not hit CD that I bought when I was 10. And I bought it because of the two big hits. But I bought this one and uh, kind of surprised I was allowed to buy it. Dude, when you told me you were 10 when you first bought this album, I, <laughs> I'm sorry to cut your story. I, I cannot. No. I'm so excited. That's the whole this. story. but <laughs> I'm, That's mind blowing. This album at 10 years old. Woo. I mean, my parents were not the biggest Prince fans. They knew his hits. And my dad actually really is in our big musical disagreement is actually over Purple Rain. He hates all of it that he knows. And I very strongly disagree, of course. But <laughs> we'll discuss Purple Rain another day on this podcast. But yeah, you said you had an up and you knew he wasn't going to listen to this album anyway. So once you figured out it no. was a wild rumpus, you were just like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But I didn't get all of it when I was 10, too. Hey, this is an hey. album that takes some time. I found some new layers to appreciate of it. And I always love going back into researching Prince. I've looked quite a bit into him over the years at certain times more so than others, but he's definitely one of the most fascinating figures in the history of popular music. Hands down. It's not even a contest. This guy had so many ideas and projects and just so much going on throughout his whole life. He will always be a source of fascination for me and many others. So it was really fun diving into this particular era for Prince, which was an interesting one. It was a transitional one. So the era begins about a year before this album was released in late 1981, when Prince and his band got the opportunity of a lifetime to open for the Rolling Stones at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. 
in front of 94,000 people, which is a huge compliment. And Prince had only had one top 40 hit by this point. He was not a huge artist like he would be. However, Mick Jagger had seen a show of his in New York on the Dirty Mind tour and loved it. So he invited him to come on stage with the Stones. But the Stones crowd did not go for Prince's show. Prince was quite different in his show at the time. He wore a trench coat and underwear on stage and he was booed. People threw things at him. They hated this guy. Because this was a mostly white audience, and this was a black man doing something that they hadn't seen before, and he was a newer artist, and it just was a disaster. Prince didn't even want to return for Night 2, but he ended up doing it. However, Night 2, people were prepared to hackle him and the band. That's terrible. And, you know, almost a kindred spirit in the sexuality and the... not audacity, but the sexuality and the over-exaggeratedness of Jagger and Prince. So it's sad to hear, you know, that that black man hung over, you know, the crowd as far as a black man rather than just another beast like Jagger, you know? Yes, you're most certainly correct about that. It is very unfortunate, but Prince took on the motto of haters are my motivators in this case. And he embarked on a year-long writing journey that was one of the most prolific periods of his career. He pretty much went into seclusion from the outside world, but he not only wrote the entire 1999 album and many songs that weren't even released, he also wrote songs for two side projects, The Time and Vanity Six. Both of those artists released albums this year, and they were said to be produced by Jamie Starr, Jamie Starr being Prince. Oh, wow. So he did a pseudonym on those. And so Vanity was his girl band, and Morris Day and The Time were his, it was his all-male band, so to speak? Yes. Am I correct? Okay. At this point in time, yes. We're early on the Prince roster would expand in the years to come, of course, after this. But this is the beginning of his empire of artists because that's what it did end up being. Many, many people walked through the gates of Paisley Park to work with the purple one. But he really wanted to just show what he could do as an artist. And he was feeling very experimental. He actually described this album as pretty much quote, nothing but me running the computers myself, which is why it wasn't as varied, end quote, which is accurate. He plays almost every instrument on the album, does many of the vocals. There are some contributions from some other band members. However, this is mostly a Prince project, very specifically. I mean, even credited for the album with five people, period, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So this is a one-man band going on for the most part here. It was pretty much just him and his trusted engineer, Peggy McCreary, working on the album. She worked on the previous one, Controversy. The album was mostly recorded at Lake Riley in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and at Sunset Studios in L.A. And fall of 1982, album's ready to go. 
However, Prince wanted to make it a double album because the songs he had created were quite long. And he wanted to price it as a single record. And Warner Brothers was hesitant about this because of the fact that Prince was not yet a huge artist. He was still pretty much just a figure in the R&B world. He was not in the pop rock world yet. And so they didn't want to release a double album by this guy who appealed to just a certain fragment of consumers. However, Steve Fagnoli at Warner Brothers was a big Prince ally and fan and was able to get it done in the U.S. But the European arm of Warner Brothers was hesitant to they released it as a single album with only seven songs. Four of the longer songs were cut from the album, but they eventually released the whole thing because it was so successful. So, yeah, so the European was, they actually released it as 1999-1 and 1999-2, correct? Uh, that was the f- other four tracks were on 1999-2? Not quite, no. no. They just released the whole album eventually. Oh, really? Okay. I thought I had read that they did two single albums. That's That's yeah. amazing. At first, it was just one single album. Eventually, they did the double album because the album ended up being a huge success. It wasn't at first. It was at first following the same pattern as the previous couple of Prince albums, mostly popular with the R&B crowd. But the album's videos got played on MTV because they had a style that was great for this new network. The tour for the album was really well-received. They were playing large venues in areas that mostly catered to that R&B crowd, but they were getting rave reviews for the show. And sure enough, the album ended up getting into the top 10 on the Billboard 200. It peaked at number nine, but it sold so steadily that for the year-end 1983 chart, it was number five. Wow. And had sold 3 million copies over the course of the year. Wow. Yeah, and going back to the MTV uh, part of him, you know, they were they were under the criticism at that point of not using black male artists um, like the people thought they would. And he's one of, you know, the first ones that they were like, yeah, let's go. Yes. The videos from this album came up at the same time as Michael Jackson's videos for Billie Jean and Beat It. So... Prince was right there in this revolution with Michael Jackson, even though he wasn't quite as big as him at this point in time. He wasn't quite at his peak, but this album and its success did lay the ground for 1984 and Purple Rain when Prince really did take over the world. I mean, I'm still... Busted up by the pun that you made, the revolution. I hope everybody got that. Uh, Charlie's <laughs> going to be singing them in throughout this whole run. So be on the lookout for the Prince Easter eggs here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. I have uh, too many. Like I said, I've had this album since I was 10. And it's very often considered one of his very best albums. I would put it in his top five albums, probably. It's not my number one. There's a few that I would say are better than this, but Purple Rain doesn't exist without this album. And a lot of stuff as we know it doesn't exist without this album because Prince created that unique Minneapolis sound here, which really fused rock, funk, R&B, and disco into one. And it was a sound that pretty much everybody in the 80s tried to emulate at some point. Yeah, Purple Rain definitely wouldn't be there if it wasn't for this. But would Prince be here if it wasn't for this album? 
Um, I would have to say, I don't think so. I, I think, well, knowing who he is now, hopefully he wouldn't, but I, you know, I, I have a feeling without this album gaining the traction that it did, that he would have fallen into the, you know, the, the background of this. And we've already seen it throughout this whole month of the eighties with these powerhouses, the Kings and the Queens coming through and taking over the sound. So um, definitely a monumental album for him. Yeah. He wouldn't be as well known as he became over the years without this album. And it's a huge part of his legacy. Yeah. And uh, that's what really matters at the end of the day. And we're here talking about it in 2022. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be doing it. So that being said, are you ready to dive on into 1999? Uh, let's go. Right. So this album begins with the title track, 1999. Actually, the last song written for the album, Prince wrote his title tracks last at this period of time. He'd done so for both Dirty Mind and Controversy. And he did this as a way to just tie the album together, which it did, and more, actually. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing that you know this song, whether or not you know the whole album. This is one of Prince's signature songs. But it's an interesting song because it is a party song. This is one of the best dance songs ever, but it's social commentary. This is a song about nuclear war. When I first heard this song as a kid, I didn't pick up on that, but eventually it became pretty clear to me. I remember I was surprised to hear this song on the album because I only knew the single edit, which is under four minutes, and it removes some of the more overt war references, especially the ending with sped up Prince asking mommy, why does everybody have a bomb? Yeah. And, and this was in the Cold War era as well, you know? So that reference was, I would imagine, even stronger to the listeners in that era, um, you know? And then we get him telling Larry King in 1999, which is ironic, but this was, yeah, this is the end of the world song. This is a song about the end of the world uh, by nuclear disaster. Yeah, Prince was in a pretty apocalyptic mode at this time. He watched movies such as Eraserhead and Blade Runner frequently when he recorded this album, so he was thinking about stuff along those lines, which definitely inspired this song, I'm sure. Yeah, but I mean, there, here you go. You have this, not a hidden agenda, but this this uh, hidden meaning inside of this beautiful party song, like you said. Those synths are iconic. The Prince strum over those synths is Prince. And we get it right here on the first track. And this track has lived in infamy. Where are we at? 829.22. We're still rapping on about it. Oh, yes, we are. This song has never gone away ever since the night that Prince saw a documentary about Nostradamus on HBO. One night in 1982, he wrote the song and the rest is history. This was the lead single from the album. But interestingly... It missed the top 40 at first. It reached only 44, but it was a hit on the dance and R&B charts. However, this song got a second chance. One, thanks to MTV playing the video often. And two, the success of the second single, the success of the second single prompted Warner Brothers to re-release 1999. And with that, this song became a hit. It peaked at number 12, but... Still seems kind of crazy that it only made it up to number 12 the first time, considering how this song 
has lasted. It's actually charted two other times since then. It recharted in 1999 at number 40, and it actually was Prince's last top 40 hit in his lifetime. But after his death, this song peaked at number 27 on the Hot 100 because this was one of the songs that people just had to buy and stream, understandably. I mean, if you haven't heard the song, this is a classic. I never, ever get sick of hearing this song. It's a beautiful party song with a deeper message. And it's a band effort, actually. There's multiple vocalists on it. The song opens with two women singing, Lisa Coleman and Jill Jones, both who were working with him at this time. And then guitarist Des Dickerson goes next. And then it's Prince. I at first thought it was just Prince doing all these different voices, but then I saw the video and realized, oh, it's different people, actually. That's cool. So uh, it reminds me, and and here we go, I'm sticking it in there. Uh, Fish covered it in 98 on in Madison Square, and they sang it one each to start it off. And I, I thought that was crazy of them to do. But now going back and listening, I was right with you. I always thought it was Prince singing this whole thing. And then you hear the varied voices uh, in the start of it. Yes, most definitely. Yeah, this one's just, it's just hard to beat. I first heard of this song in my dad's almanac. He's always had an almanac for each year. And I saw a list of the songs of the century and this song was on there. And I thought, that's an interesting title and artist. I was intrigued by it immediately. I actually think I might have bought this song for my iPod Nano before I even heard the whole thing. Because I just knew this was going to be a song I enjoy. That's awesome. Yeah, going back to the Billboard numbers, when I first saw them, I thought that was crazy as well, too. You know, it's it's such a banger of a party song that I would only imagine everybody would be requesting it on the radio, going out there, grabbing it up. It, it just seems viral. Uh, maybe that's how we see it now because it's such an iconic song, but I can't believe that it didn't. It's, it just seems like a number one hit to me, it's, or at least top five. I know. And in retrospect, it might as well have been because, like we said, this is a signature Prince song. I think everybody knows it. And the video was an early MTV staple, and it was a simple video for the time. It was a live performance video on a soundstage, but there were lots of lights and fast edits and two really pretty ladies with Lisa and Jill. And that definitely helped the video get airplay, certainly. And you also have Dr. Fink, the keyboardist dressed in hospital scrubs. (laughs) Prince managed to make himself stand out with his performance videos in this era, even though they weren't quite the elaborate productions he would do later on. It's part of his mystery. It's just the way he's always made, or or at least from this point on, made his character. And I've always loved that. Yeah, this one's just, it's the best. Never ever will get sick of it. And interestingly, though this song wasn't a number one hit, it very, very heavily inspired a number one hit of 1985. What we got? Sousa Studio by Phil Collins. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Get out of town. Oh, mine officially blown right there. Oh, that, I yeah. got to listen to them back to back after this. Yeah. Phil Collins didn't actually deny the similarity at all. He admitted, yeah, I'm a big Prince fan. That's he a shit. wasn't going to deny it. And that song's not as good as this one. It's not transcendent like this song, but still a fun song. It's just not 
brilliant. This song is brilliant. Yeah, it is. Oh man, I'm I'm going over the two songs in my head right now. That's so insane. The back clap. Oh, I can't wait to I can't wait to listen to those back to back. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. It'll also be my pleasure to discuss track number two on the album, Little Red Corvette. Little Red Corvette, man. This the the only song that I've ever heard of to get exp- earn explicit on Spotify just uh, without actually cursing, just in the innuendos and and moaning and all types of wild sexual oh, everything. Yeah, <laughs> sounds period. You know. Yeah, this is another song I've known forever. I actually first saw it on a VH1 show called "The Hundred Greatest Songs of the Eighties." They used to do shows like that, and this was on there, and I liked the song. I put it on my iPod. I actually did think it was about a car. I was in fourth grade. (laughs) I was so innocent then. Obviously, now it's pretty obviously about sex. Yeah. But this one went straight on the Nano, too. I adore this one as well. I I, I, I like this one. I've always liked this one, but really diving down, it's not just about... Or in my opinion, it's not just about like uh, like the glorified sex. It's almost about a little cautiousness into casual sex, you know, like excitement, fear, psychological ins and outs, period. But it's definitely about some sex. <laughs> yeah, but it's deeper than many other sex songs, as you noted. It goes through everything going in his mind with being with this woman. He really went there with it and created another brilliant song. And everybody agreed that this was a brilliant song. This was the second single from the album. And this was the Breakthrough Prince single. This became his first top 10 hit. It peaked at number six, which still seems too low. This was a jam-packed year for great pop hits. The week it peaked at number six, the number one song was Let's Dance by David Bowie. Also a brilliant song. Wow. Another one of the songs blocking this was Michael Jackson's Beat It. So, Jesus whiz. There were some fantastic songs out in 1983, and this was one of them. But what was most impressive about this song was this one crossed him over to a rock audience. This was both a hit on the rock and R&B charts. So now he was winning over those Rolling Stones fans who hated him a couple years prior. There you go. Now he had a song for them. But interestingly, Prince didn't play the guitar solo. Des Dickerson did. Oh, wow, really? It was pretty surprising for Prince to give that up at this point in time, but he knew this guy could do it, and he did it. It's a classic. Do we see that, not trying to go too far ahead, but do we see that a lot on this album, or? No. Okay, okay, that's what I thought. I mean, you could have fooled me that that wasn't Prince playing, but. It sounds like it's Prince playing. I would have thought it was, but it is not. But you see it in the video, another performance piece. And again, you can't get your eyes off of Prince in that one. It's much more focused on him than the video for 1999. But he does a dance break during the solo in his purple jacket. It's great. The only bad thing about the video is that it uses the single edit of the song, which is only three minutes, which I think is... Horrible, honestly. The song's five minutes and it shouldn't be edited ever. There's no way, there's no way MTV gets away with playing this in a full <laughs> in its entirety. I mean, he did get to slide down 
a fireman's pole in that giant, beautiful, you know, purple uh, jacket. But I don't know. You think MTV gets away with playing this in 82 all the way? I mean, probably not, but it's still in hindsight crazy to think about. And why would you ever edit Little Red Corvette? This is one of the best songs ever. Yeah, it doesn't do it justice being edited. But they knew. <laughs> yeah. I, I go back to that Spotify thing. That blew my mind. Explicit on Spotify that don't even curse. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I actually love the extended dance remix of this song that goes on for eight and a half minutes because okay. I can't get enough of Little Red Corvette. It's a car I want to stay in forever. <laughs> yeah. I, I will it. always party like it's 1999 and I will always ride in a little red Corvette. Those are two of my life mottos. I don't think of life without these songs. That's just how I work. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. And it's not hard to see why this was the song that crossed Prince over at the perfect time because there was no denying this song and uh, its brilliance. It's irresistible. It's all I can say. It is an irresistible tune, and uh, I will never, ever get sick of it. There you go. Little Red Corvette for life. There you go. We need that T-shirt for you. Little Red Corvette for life. I'm going to find it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we'll talk about this more, but what's pretty crazy to me is this is one of the best songs that can handle being longer, yet it's not one of the longer songs on this album at all. Agreed. Agreed. We we talked we chatted about that a little bit before we got started tonight. But these longer track listings on paper immediately are like, whoa, but they fill it. He fills it out all the way through on almost every one of these. I would have to agree, but we're actually not quite there yet. Our next yep. track is song number three, Delirious. This is the shortest song on the album, actually. It's only four minutes yet. It was still edited for single release, which seems goofy. I don't see the point of that at all for a four-minute song, but... Really? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. This is a straightforward one, you know? For me, the rockabilly-ish sound of it, it's it's an eight-bar blues straight up. It was almost like a palate cleanser from the funk and the hardcore sexuality, especially at, at right after Little Red Corvette. And, well, we don't know about the rest of the album, but we'll talk about how much of a palate cleanser it was after this. Uh, it, it's just a straightforward banger um, that, that that gives us, a, in my opinion, a fitting ending for the first side of this album. I agree. And it was also an easy single, of course. It's a oh, really yeah. catchy tune and... It was another top 10 hit for Prince. It made it up to eight on the Hot 100. And it's a fun tune. He's getting pretty into it. It's been compared to a song on the Controversy album called Jack You Off, which also is rockabilly style with much racier lyrics, of course. This one's a bit tamer, and it is a better song than that one. And uh, this is just a solid Prince hit. The only negative thing I can say about it is I like that it's track number three. It is a good palate cleanser. However, for Prince standards, this is a really good song. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the first two songs were brilliant. This isn't brilliant. This is a really good, fun Prince song. If he'd given this to The Time or somebody else, it would have been probably the best song they did. That's a great point. The first time I listened to this album all the way through, 
it just struck me as something that didn't necessarily fit the sound that was going on. It's a great, it's a, it's a great song, but you're right as a Prince song. And especially on this album, it's a good song. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good hit song. Not going to deny that at all. It's just not quite brilliant. Like the best songs on this album are. That's my only issue with it, but still a really good Prince song is still a great song. So Delirious is another winner in my book. Most definitely. I once had a co-worker say to me that they were delirious, and then I had to say, oh, Prince Delirious? I just had to <laughs> say it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I drop that in whenever I get a chance. I don't get it often, but I had to do it in the moment. Uh, and my co-worker appreciated it, so. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now we are leaving Delirium, sadly, and flipping the album over. And uh, track number four we're on to, Let's Pretend We're Married. Woo! This is a subversive song. That's the only word I can use to describe it. And I think it's brilliant in its subversiveness. Because according to society, you're only supposed to be having sex if you're married. Yep. And uh, this guy's saying... Let's pretend we're married and just have crazy sex. He's turning the whole thing on its head. And it's a funky tune, but it also has this innocent sounding ooey, sha, sha, coo, coo, yeah. That just makes this sound like fun. It's not a big deal. We're just having wild sex all the time, but it's all fun. It's okay. And uh, that's a perfect way to say it. If this song was in a room with you, you wouldn't even notice that it was having wild sex until you looked at it. You know what I'm saying? You could walk by this song and hear it and be like, oh, cool. But this song is definitely fucking in the corner of the room. <laughs> well, the bridge makes it pretty clear. Oh, yeah. Almost. Oh, so I'm saying that. Ooh, yeah, the, the soft sound you were talking about. The bridge makes it totally clear. I mean, what yeah. the, when, when they edited this, edited this one down, it was rated that 340. And it was because after that, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't even know if we're allowed to really get. I, I mean, we're explicit on the on the thing, you know. We're mature, but we, we are. I'm not repeating says, what no. you said. If you know, you know. It's like stuff you would say, like you would tell the boys. You said to, and then you would never mind. Don't get me. Don't we're don't not put me there. Yeah, but he says some serious shit in this one. Yeah, this one escalates quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so as you said, it was edited uh, to be yes. a single. Of all songs. <laughs> which I can kind of see. It's a catchy tune, but this was not a hit. It made it up to 52 on the Hot 100. And it's not because it's not a good song. It's because this is not radio friendly. This was never going to make it on the top 40. This is raunchy as hell. Yes, it is. This yes, is, it is really inappropriate for radio, even today. <laughs> This is inappropriate, period. It's fun, but... <laughs> yep. It's it's wild to think, uh, or it's, it's wild that it just adds to that mythos of Prince. The sexuality of Prince, of who... I'm speaking for myself, but who I know him as today and who I've learned about throughout throughout my life. It's just like, you expect that, but man, does it blow you away? Uh, it's it's a shock inside this album. Uh, the first shock of this album, really, for me, and it opens side two. So <laughs> it, 
if you're if you are a just first time listener or you know a casual listener on this album and you just picked it up then you finish delirious and you flip it over and here goes prince on a tirade of the dirtiest shit you've ever heard in your life <laughs> yeah and actually that exact thing happened in 1983 with a couple from cincinnati they enjoyed the hits off of this album and bought it <laughs> and when they played this song they were so shocked by it that they ran to turn the volume down so their kids wouldn't hear it. Oh, yeah, especially this song. And they actually went to their PTA and proposed that albums have warning labels on it. Wow. And uh, it's all because of Prince that we have this, because this was the precursor to Darling Nikki getting noticed by Tipper Gore and her starting the PMRC. Wow. What, what did a 10-year-old Charlie think about this? I really don't remember Heard. what the meaning of the bridge was. I just thought, oh, that's a bad word. I'm not allowed yeah. to say that. Yeah, because the F word is prominent in the song. Yes, it is. I just thought this is a fun, catchy song. I knew it was racy, but it wasn't what I went back and listened to much. I will say that probably because it was so raunchy. Yeah. And it's also long. It goes on for over seven minutes. I don't think any of it's wasted. and. Uh, the funniest part of it all is at the end he mentions that he believes in God. It's like, after all that. Well, this is, it, it, it was mind-blowing reading the lyrics as I, I think it was like the third time I listened to it that I actually was like, okay, he really does at the end. He sets that bar for himself. Like, look, I believe in God mostly because of fear of the afterlife, but let's have fun right now. Uh, let's get it on because we got this life to live, you know? Uh, if you're fighting Get out of here. I'm out, you know, I'm going on to another life. <laughs> you know? But yeah, that's real. Whoo man, does he let it be known? Oh yeah. But interestingly, Tina Turner regularly covered this song live in the 80s in her concerts. Get out of town. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it kind of makes sense because she was a wild performer when she was in that review with Ike Turner. She was wild and out there. I guess this fit her stage persona, but... I, would you put the raunchiness on her? Um, this is a pretty raunchy jam. Not pretty raunchy. This is a raunchy jam, especially to be thrown out live. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm being uh I think na- Tina naive. Turner... I don't think all her songs are this raunchy by any means, but I think she at this point in time, had that energy showing off those legs on stage. She okay. knew what she was doing. Okay. Miss Tina. <laughs> Go on. Go on, Tina. Yes. <laughs> Go I mean, on, Tina. Didn't strike me as a cover tune, but hey, to every Tina their own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One and only Tina yeah. Turner, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, also, she was making a comeback. She wanted to do a contemporary song for her show instead of uh, a song the kids weren't going to know from what she did when she started out. They weren't going to know A Fool in Love. True. So makes sense. makes sense. Might as well keep up with the kids. And she did that very well, as we know. Heard that. So... Go on, Tina. And actually, Tina pretended she was married for a long time. She didn't marry her husband for almost 30 years. You're, you're amazing on how you put that in there. Good for you. Good for so you. That was on the fly, folks. She did it. That was on the fly, folks. I love it. All right. <laughs> yes. But 
Prince keeps the party going with track number five, DMSR, Dance, Music, Sex, Romance. Dance, Music, Sex, Romance. How do you feel about this song? So I enjoy this song. I always have. I've always thought it's too long. This song does go on for over eight minutes. And uh, it's a fun party song. I think that eight minute would go over great in a club or a concert. Fantastic. That's a lot of fun. On an album, it's not necessary. There's an edit of this song that's five minutes because this song was actually in Risky Business. Heard. And uh, the five-minute version was included on the soundtrack. I think the five-minute version should have been included on the album. There's no reason that this song is eight minutes and Little Red Corvette's five. Because, this again, this is a fun song. I enjoy listening to it. It's a good time. But at the end of the day, it's a really good party song. It's not brilliant like the best songs here. This does not need to be longer than 1999, for goodness sakes. This, for me, screamed funk. I mean, of course, it's it's, it's a funk track. But when I say funk, I'm not talking necessarily just about slapping bass. Like, I'm talking about the mothership, you know, like what Parliament was doing, what, what had come before him. So this sound, I equate to those long Parliament funked out narratives uh, and I can see why it's that long for me automatically I heard atomic dog in this because of the like and the, the the wave style synth behind it I had to look it up to see which one came out first and atomic dog came out just after this like two months after this but the sound is so similar and I mean, it it just speaks to any of the inhabitants of the the mothership out there. Like it is the funky piece. Yeah, I, on the length, I can I can feel you. It's not it's not radio friendly as far as the length goes, but it it fit only because of that the the funk hierarchy or the funk that preceded it, in my opinion. And it's great that you mentioned that because George Clinton and Prince ended up working together later on down the road. So two funk masters coming together makes perfect sense. So two characters, period. I mean, and that too stage presence and just out there. I go with the over-exaggeratedness again, but yeah, they just screamed atomic dog in my brain. I don't know if it does for anybody else, but it's there. I have to mention the best line in the song. (laughs) <laughs> All you white people clap your hands on the floor. <laughs> I wonder part. if that was a shot at all those white people throwing things at him. He's making fun of them here, and that's hysterical. Yeah, I, I, agreed, agreed. If it wasn't just at them, it was at, you know, the, the same people that would, nest, you know, hopefully not, but the same people that would have that racist undertone. But they got that, you know, they love that funk. Like, all right, go on, all you white people, clap your hand on the floor, <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, poke at him, do it, especially in the funk. And uh, it's interesting that he included this on the album that really crossed him over to the white audience. <laughs> heard, heard. Uh, this, but yeah, like I mean, they this say, is... like Prince's musical contemporary Madonna said once, music makes the people come together. This is real. That it does. That it does. I'm on fire today. I love you it. You are on fire. You are, <laughs> you are. I'm I'm loving every minute of it. You are on point. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, Prince continues to be on fire as uh, the first disc of the album ends, and we move on to the second one, side three of the album, with the longest song on the album, Automatic, a really popular song title in the early 80s. This is the second Automatic song we've covered here. There was one on the Go-Go's album we did, and there was a Pointer Sisters hit in 1983 called Automatic, which is a great song as well. This was actually a single in Australia only, which is crazy considering how long the song is. This is another really sticky hook. Even though the song is so long, that hook just, it sticks like glue, especially the spelling A-U-T-O-Matic. It's just such a, it seems simple, but it's such a brilliant just idea and it works so well and this is just a great groove. I do think this could be shortened by like a minute. The version used for the video was eight minutes. I think that sufficed just fine. But nonetheless, he was really going on here. He, he was. You took, you took the words right out of my notes. The hook is super present right from the, be- the beginning. And it sticks. It, it, it's, it's a great, great hook. This, in my opinion, is one of the more happy, uh, on this album, one of the more happy love songs. The uh, speaks about love in that automatic, instant way. And I, and I like that. Because at first I thought this was another car reference and with the A-U-T-O-matic, but it, it really does. It speaks about just uh, automatic love. See, it's interesting. Many listeners interpret this as like a cold love song, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. They see the automatic as he's a robot, not really in love, but he's a robot. Oh, wow. No, well, I read it and and listened to it as this was just one of those loves that happens instantaneously. I oh, mean, I- with Prince, who knows how he intended it, honestly. That's all part of his mystique. Yeah. But like I said, there was a video for this song, and uh, what a video. So... Okay. This video is also set on a stage. However, Prince is wearing a bondage outfit in the video. And past the midway point, a bed comes onto the stage. Jill Jones and Lisa Coleman come out and uh, tease him and end up tying him to the bed. And it's an S&M fantasy, basically. And uh, understandably, this didn't get a lot of airplay, if any, because... uh, well, nobody was going to watch an S&M fantasy on MTV 40 years ago. Shit, not in 82. Not, no, no, sir. No, sir. No, and uh, it's an interesting video. It's not my favorite video from this album. That would be 1999, but it's the first real production piece, I guess, Prince did in a way. It definitely set the stage for some of the videos he would do in the future that were more elaborate. Starting with the lead single from the next album, the When Doves Cry video, that was a production. There was a lot going on there. It was and, indeed. Uh, there's quite a bit going on in this video, too. So I don't, I don't think I've ever seen this video. Uh, now, I have to go check it out. I, I'm, I'm going through the old MTV run in my brain, and I, I don't, nothing strikes a chord on this. It was very rarely aired, if it was at all. And... Uh, I will say, I don't find the scene sexy at all. It does feel very calculated and uh, not fun, even though Jill Jones was one of Prince's girlfriends. 
<laughs> one of many of Prince's girlfriends. He collaborated musically and romantically with many of the ladies in his orbit. Not Lisa, though, because Lisa is a lesbian. So, gotcha. But she's a great musician. So, Prince did need her for that. That's what matters. There you go. There you go. And another interesting thing about this song before I move on that I want to mention, even though this is a really long song on the album, the live versions of it are actually only around the five minute mark. Really? Yeah. And this is a song I kind of would have thought would have been like a fish jam piece live. Like they just would have gone on and on. But it's not at all, actually, that it's much shorter live. So do you think it's preference? Maybe it's just not one of his favorite tunes or... I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's one he went back to a lot over the years, but his set list changed a lot. He didn't ever stick to a set set list. I guess sure. you could say not to be redundant, but no. yeah, he didn't. He changed it up a lot. He liked to. So that was just how he rolled. Yep. Part of the show. And after that, we move on to track number seven, an important one for you. I want to hear what you think of this one. This Something is... in the water does not compute. Yep. This one is an okay seven for me. Um, the computer sound right off the bat is not my favorite sound on this album. I understand where it's coming from. I understand the tone of it lyrically, uh, story-wise, um, you know, about a guy who can't figure out why he treats these women so, so great. And they turn around. It could only be something in the water. This one, if I had to pick a least favorite on the whole entire album, it had it like gone to the head. It would have to be this one. Do I think it is the a, a terrible uh, song? No, but it's not necessarily my cup of tea for, for the sound that we've already been exploring throughout this album. I agree. I would say this is my least favorite on the album. It's definitely the most experimental song here. It's actually often been described as a blues funk song, which is really unique, actually. And upon another listen, I kind of did hear that. I definitely think this song is a precursor to Computer Blue on Purple Rain. Heard. But I think that's a much better song, and that one's more rocky. It has more of a band feel. It's just a better piece overall, and uh, that probably doesn't help this song for me, honestly. It's like the computing Prince song is computer blue. Yeah. I don't need this. Sorry, can, but... I, I didn't draw the line in between, but computer blue crushes this song, in my opinion. I can see the it being the predecessor to it. Uh, just that's with, how I see it, that yeah. is. I don't know if everybody else does, but... That's a cool way to look at it, though. I mean, because those computer sounds are undeniable. And that's what? That's the second song on side three? Yeah, we have one more song on side three, which is actually free. F-R-E-E. This is the most classic soul track on the album, I would say. It's mostly a kind of piano, later in the air ballad kind of song. And it's about how we should be grateful to be free to choose our destiny. And I think that's a really nice message. This isn't often considered one of the best songs on the album, but I've always enjoyed this one. I feel empowered listening to it. I mean, this is that gospel spitting guitar virtuoso that we can always get from Prince, you know, the rawness. Um, they really stripped this down too. Like you said, you're, you're getting the that piano sound, that synthy sound is gone on this. It's really down to almost a ballad. 
I like the uh, pick your own path. This one struck me more as a freedom as Americans, you know, be happy with what you got, be glad for what you got. And that's that freedom, uh, the freedom to do what you want. And I thought that was a, a really cool message inside this album. I don't know if it is, but that that's what I had taken from it. I don't disagree with that. I'm sure that was a, a part of it. And this is one of the more collaborative songs on the album. So the aforementioned Lisa Coleman and Jill Jones uh, both sing backing vocals on this song. But joining them are Vanity of Vanity Sex and Wendy Melvoin, who would not long after this be a part of the revolution and would later work with Lisa extensively as Wendy and Lisa. They're major players in both Prince's career and they charted a path on their own. So that makes this song very notable for being the first appearance of Wendy Melvoin on a Prince album because uh, she did not go away for a few years and was a huge part of Purple Rain, that's for sure. Most definitely. Definitely somebody whose contributions we're grateful for as Prince fans. I know I am. Wendy and Lisa are awesome. Perfectly said. However, I do have to say one thing before we move on. I do like this song. I think it's a really good palate cleanser, too, especially to have more of a ballad here. However... There was another ballad that it was better, but it was a B-side instead of being on the album. The B-side for 1999 was a song called How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. It's a pretty spare piano ballad, and it is a better song than this one. Prince was interesting in that almost all of his singles had separate songs as B-sides that weren't featured on the albums. But How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore is a classic in its own right, and it's been covered several times, most notably by Alicia Keys on her debut album. So it's a good thing that it's a song many people have gotten to know. It's an awesome track. I do think it should have been on the album instead of Free. I think Free is more of a B-side than that one. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I didn't think about that when I was thinking, when I was listening to Free, but that makes sense. That's my main hot tea take about this album. This should have been a B-side instead of How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. I didn't realize that was a B-side. I thought that was on a later album. Nope. Um, But wow. It's the B-side for the 1999 single. Some of these B-sides are pretty cool. I really love the B-side for Delirious, which is Horny Toad. That's a fun rockabilly song, too. But it would have been a bit redundant here, but that's a really cool song. and also. Gotta love Irresistible Bitch, the pre the B-side for Let's Pretend We're Married. Gotta love that one, too. So, yeah. all kinds of fun stuff going on this era. We love it. We do, indeed. And now, we're gonna flip over to the last side of the album, side four, and track number nine, Lady Cab Driver. Oh. Truth. This is a heavy one. <laughs> It is indeed heavy musically and heavy. We're, we're back into another sex romp. <laughs> uh, but that that slap bass right off the jump. We're away from a drum machine, if I'm correct, on this track. We've got traditional drums and both of them really drive this song, in my opinion. This one is uh, another long, funky song. It's over eight minutes, but it's perfect for me. This is my favorite non-single on the album, for sure. I just... Uh, Love the whole idea of it. It's kind of a relatable thing, I imagine, for many people. 
You know, it's like, take me for a ride, lady cab driver. Of course, he means it in two different ways, because in the middle of the song, he's having sex with the lady cab driver. And he's just going off on this philosophical rant about tourists at Disneyland, his (laughs) brother, anything you can think of, he's going off about. This was a cool one because this was one where he lets, or in the narrative I took, you know, you're letting the female take control and drive the sexual experience. And you're getting a chance to really wax philosophical, as you said, as you enjoy the ride from this lady cab driver. Yes. And uh, the lady cab driver in this song is played by Jill Jones. And uh, she gives quite a performance, honestly. (laughs) This is probably the most impressive uh, sex simulation on record since Love to Love You, Baby by Donna Summer. This one really goes there. Deep cutting it. Deep cutting it. I like it. but I, I totally agree with you there. Oh, it's wild. And uh, he makes that sex sound really important with his rant. I'll say that. He does indeed. <laughs> he does make it sound important. Even with all of its sound and explicitness, it still doesn't come off as raunchy, in my opinion, as let's pretend we're married. You oh, know? no. But it's it's still sex right in front of our face, which, I mean, pretty much this whole album has been. <laughs> yes. And this is another song that inspired a hit later on. The song Oh Sheila by Ready for the World was a number one hit in the 80s, and it's often been mistaken for a Prince song. It's not a Prince song, but it's been specifically said that the backbeat of that tune was influenced by Lady Cab Driver. Okay. And I really like Oh Sheila, actually, so that's another win for this song in my book. And I also forgot to mention the fact that Little Red Corvette was the song that inspired Stevie Nicks to write Stand Back. Oh, really? Yes, and uh, she called him and he played the synthesizer on Stand Back, and that's a classic song in its own right, but this album's footprints were just everywhere throughout the rest of the 80s, which I think is incredible. I mean, and, and, you know, talk about the footprints of the sound, but Prince was everywhere. Like, is there one album that we haven't talked about this month that Prince wasn't on or a part of in some point? Not Metallica. Well, Metallica, that's true. (laughs) That is true. And he wasn't on the next album that we did discuss because we didn't discuss the album with Stand Back. I'm sure we will at some point eventually because that's a great album, but... We're still talking about this one, but yep. anyway, Lady Cab Driver, it's a cab I don't want to get out of. I love it. There you go. And now we're actually moving on to the second to last song on the album, which is one of the few on the album, Not About Sex. Truth. All the critics love you in New York. This was actually the first song written for the album. He wrote this after a successful show on the Dirty Mind tour at the Roxy. It was attended by a lot of big names like Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger, and uh, he debuted it at his hometown club, First Avenue, but told the crowd, well, you won't hear it for another year or six. Wow. It ended up being a year, fortunately, because it ended up on the album, and uh, this is one of his snarkiest songs. It's a really sarcastic reply to his critics but it's kind of odd considering that critics were his biggest champions in these early years for him. 
They likely kept him signed to Warner Brothers, actually, because his first album really underperformed. That critical championship helped him in a lot of way, but here he's kind of biting back at their adulation of him, which I find interesting. Yeah, at the same time, he's, in my opinion, capturing the fast pace, always moving, dangerous, in quotes, cop siren filled air of New York. And I, f- I feel like he's also, again, in my opinion, set, you know, just letting that freak flag fly and, and finding that like in New York, Christ, I could shave my head. I could do whatever I want. I could do a backflip, you know, and, and they're going to love it. And this is my kind of my kind of scene because of who I am. Yeah, there's, all, there's some real interesting stuff going on in the background of so many of these songs. I forgot to mention the woman asking for help in DMSR. That was pretty wild, too. <laughs> but Prince must have really liked this song because in a rare case, this was a B-side, actually. It was the B-side for Little Red Corvette, and it was rare for album tracks to be B-sides for Prince. So he must have really liked this song, but... There's one line in the song that's really interesting. He mentions the death of jazz. Yeah. And uh, this is really interesting for Prince for a couple of reasons. One, Prince's father, John, was a really accomplished jazz musician. And he had a troubled relationship with his father, but also greatly admired him for his playing. So I feel like it's kind of an indictment and celebration of his father, that line. I feel like he's trying to say, hey, I'm not my father. Yeah. This is the death of jazz. Well, because the line is jazz needs to be dead, right? Am I correct? I'm not looking at it, but I think it's somewhere along that line. Or jazz is dead. I I I should be looking directly at it. But it makes sense. Now, while we're looking it up, this is one of the most beautiful spoken word poems ever. If you just read the lyrics with no sound on top of, in my opinion, on top of being a a beautiful song. But uh, it's a really well put together narrative and the prose inside of it. The rhythm of the is, is spot on. Yeah. The line is, it's time for jazz to die. Yeah. But... But Later, him just stepping out of his father's shadow at that point could 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 be that, you know. Yeah, but what's so interesting is later on, Prince had a jazz side project called Madhouse, yeah. and he released jazz instrumental albums in the 2000s. So he went back to those roots much later on and really backtracked what he said here as he got older. Yeah, well, I mean, as he grew, you know, uh, as he grew, he went back to those roots. Um, But you're right. You know, there's a little bit of like, love your dad, but it's time for me to move out in that line. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this was preceding Purple Rain. And as we know, that's a semi-autobiographical film that focuses a lot on his relationship with his father. And that was a really key motif throughout Prince's career. It just... Is one of those things that kept showing up. And uh, this is the point in this album when it does. And I think it's a really interesting way to do it. So one of the most creative ways to slide his father into his album. Definitely. All the critics love you in New York. We love you in Baltimore, Prince. There you go. We love you in Baltimore. (laughs) Always have, always will. And uh, with that being said... We are on to the final track on the album, 
International Lover. Yes. So this is the slow jam of the album. This is a pretty traditional R&B type of song, the slow jam. It's something everybody did. Marvin Gaye did a bunch of them in the 70s. These kind of songs are dime a dozen, but Prince does it his way. And he actually originally wrote it for Morris Day in the time. Really? Yeah. But he kept it for himself. And uh, even though this is an overdone type of song, Prince did these songs really well. He did had um, Do Me Baby on the previous album, Controversy. That's a great slow jam. And so is this one. And uh, oh my goodness, this song should be so corny. This it shouldn't this, work, but it does. It works because he's a virtuoso. It works because he is a musician at the top of his game and can do these genres. It is corny, but it's so beautifully funny. It reminds me almost of like, and this is way after this, but like hip hop albums in the nineties where you would hear like these comical outros or, um, or like old dirty bastard singing a song about crazy shit, but it sounds beautiful because it's on top of, of a track. That's so beautiful. This song for me is Prince. Like you could, you could, in my opinion, name this song. I am Prince and he could sing international lover. And I'd still be down with it because this is who I think Prince is in my brain. I mean, for anyone who's never heard this song, we get to fly the the seduction seven four seven. Yeah, the seduction seven forty seven with our Captain Prince. Oh my God, he is the pimp of all pimps in this song. I mean, it, reminiscent of some old Parliament um, narrative, like some he it, Prince, and he goes down there low in his voice, but like this is that one, like sit back and relax, baby. Like it's time to take a ride on the seduction 747. Uh, I love everything about this right off the bat. It sounds so slow. And I'm like, Oh man, Prince don't have an album on some slow stuff. But by the end, I'm in tears of laughter and loving every minute of it. Yeah. This one hasn't always been one of my favorites because well, it's a slow song, but now I really appreciate there's just so much artistry here. It's brilliant. I love this song. It's a fantastic closer, and it shouldn't work anywhere near as well as it does, but (laughs) it really does. And I love the live performance of it done on the 1999 tour. They bring out a bed on the stage, and there's a neon red heart on there, of course. And of course, he simulate sex on the bed because that's what you do with international lover playing definitely a precursor to madonna's performance of like a virgin on the blonde ambition tour heard that very interesting song and a cool one and this song got prince's first grammy nomination get out of here Yep, it was nominated for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance, and the album was nominated for Best Pop Male Vocal Performance. They both lost to Michael Jackson. This was the year of Thriller and Billie Jean, and uh, I can see why it is Thriller and Billie Jean, but at the same time, this is amazing. uh, Amazing. International lover? That is awesome. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Oh, this I'm I'm in I'm literally reading the lyrics as we speak, just going through them. It's just, I mean, I'm dying over here. It's yeah, so honestly, great. Prince won the best male R and B vocal award twice in the 2000s for 
songs not as good as this one, it was probably consolation because uh, <laughs> even the Grammy voters could not deny the power of the yeah. Seduction 747. Oh, what a great way to end the album. I mean, literally the last words on the album are thank you for flying Prince International. Remember, next time you fly, fly the international lover. <laughs> Peace, I'm out. Oh, what a great ending. <laughs> I wish Prince International were a thing. They should make that an airline just for people to go to Paisley Park. That'd be the shit. Just fly in and out. <laughs> That'd be glorious. There's a Prince experience currently in Chicago. I don't know how long it'll be, but... Oh, I want to go so badly. I don't oh, know who shit. will go with me, but I want to go so badly. Oh, man, we're back in the school year. You know I would go if it was summertime. <laughs> let, me, let me know. Let me know. Let's see if it's in the books. Still open. I hope it is. Oh, I would love to go so badly. But yes, international lover. I'm summoning it. Prince International, take me to Paisley Park in Chicago, please. I will do it. And ooh, they could play Prince songs the whole time. Everybody will be dressed in purple. It would be like the the Bob Marley mausoleum tour I took in Jamaica, where you're like you're on a bus and you watch, you know, you listen to Bob and it's Rasta's the whole way, except it'll just be pimped out, Prince International. <laughs> oh God, everybody's just having sex on the plane. Jesus, whiz, what a what that, a thought. That can be the first class section. Can be for that. I want to, I want to just chill, enjoy some Prince inspired cocktails and. Uh, Listen to go. some tunes. There you go. <laughs> Do some Prince karaoke, you know? Yeah, I love Stuff it. Stuff like that. Oh, I'm a genius. That was you a are. good idea I that had. <laughs> Any investors listening, don't pass up this moment. Yes, Prince International. <laughs> summoning it. Oh, man. Well, unfortunately, we're at the end of the album. Gotten to track 11. What is your grade for the album? My grade for this album is a resounding A um, with its shocks and raunchiness. For me, this album is Prince. Even to the cover work on this album, he puts little pieces of himself inside of it, puts and the revolution backwards on it. This is Prince before and looking into the future, and he's ready to take over and become the artist we know and love. Yeah, this is an A for me too. I was at first thinking A minus, but it's an A. I do think a couple of the songs are too long, but I don't think any of the songs are bad. And uh, even the ones that aren't my favorites, there's interesting things going on in them. There's a lot of risks taken with this album, a lot to appreciate here. And without this album, we would not have Purple Rain, which is Hot Tea Take, the best album ever made. Woo-hoo-hoo! Ever made? Go on, get it. All right. Heard that, but yes, we would never have it if it wasn't for this. And uh, I have to give it a lot of credit for that because, yeah, it's Purple Rain. What else is there to say other than what I just said? I can't follow that, I'm afraid. Heard no, I heard. Yeah. Best album of all time, but... So it, well, now you got to pick your favorite track on this. Oh, it's the title track, 1999. It's my favorite Prince song. It's an obvious answer, but I don't care. I've known it for most of my life. I've never gotten sick of it. And I just think it's a brilliant song. Like, you made a party song that doubles as social commentary. Not everybody can do that effectively. 
Agreed. But Prince did it better than anybody ever has and ever will. Uh, DMSR was going to be right there, but International Lover is that jam piece, man. <laughs> I, I, it strikes all the chords for me. It's a great song. It's a Prince song. It makes me geek out, and I'm so glad to have found it. <laughs> I'm glad you found it, too. International Lover is a banger. It's I mean, not even my favorite non-single. That's the Lady Cab Driver, but... yeah. yeah. Warning, warning to everybody that I drink with, you're going to be listening to International Lover just like quintessential Wu-Tang tracks. <laughs> yeah. Get ready. Get ready for Cross rolling out International Lover. <laughs> if we're at a bar with touch tunes, International Lover will come on and serenade the whole room. Game over. Game Can't over. wait for it already. Yes. Shit. We'll clear that room quicker than me putting fish on the touch tubes. <laughs> People were like, what? We're out of here. But like, sit down and learn. <laughs> oh. Oh, they're yeah. going to learn. Uh huh. They're going to learn. Yes. Why would they leave our beautiful faces, though? Why yeah, well, that's they? true. That's true. <laughs> this is true. I forgot we were in that room. Yeah. <laughs> international lover will just drive them all wild for us oh prince international to finish off our 80s month man that was that was a wild ride right there that was a wild ride yes wild ride on the seduction 747 the 747 with uh, a lady cab driver and the little red corvette we did all kinds of things we did we did did all of the things with this album it was yeah. so much fun but all the albums this month were were, were a blast. It really I was agree. Uh, it was a great time. I agree. And uh, we're going to keep the fun going with this next month. We'll be going into the 90s because September's the ninth month of the year. And uh, the first album we'll be discussing will be continuing in the vein of the 80s classics we discussed. We'll be doing Janet Period by Janet Jackson. It's a great album to follow this one because... Her producers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, were once members of a band called The Time. So that is an example of the Prince Minneapolis sound crossing over. And it takes some interesting turns in the 90s as we see it evolve. And I'm really excited to discuss this album. It's a really interesting album with a lot of unique ideas. And it's a really bold statement from Miss Janet. And... I love Miss Janet. She's amazing. So can't wait to dive into that one. In the meantime, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcasts. Also follow us wherever you listen to us, whether it be Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. We're on all of them. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode as much as you have the last few. Very happy to see that the last few have been well-received because uh, it's been a lot of fun diving into the 80s. That it has. And uh, we just hope to keep on going with uh, the 90s and keep on spinning and spilling, and that's what we're going to do. So until next time, hop on the Seduction 747 and blast off. Peace!